Jesus was born in Bethlehem, so, but Mary and Joseph were in Nazareth. Mary and Joseph had to somehow get to Bethlehem for Jesus to be born for the prophecy in, Ch in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, to come to pass, to be fulfilled, which says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathath, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times." And so how is it going to take place that Mary and Joseph, who are in Nazareth, have to travel to Bethlehem? And it's really interesting, and I think this makes a great point for us to understand, is that God actually used the Roman authorities and the leaders of the Roman world to institute things that would lead to the prophecy being fulfilled just like it had taken place. And the reason that's important is because we've, we've said, but we also need to continually remind ourselves that there is nothing going on in the world that surprises God. And that everything that is taking place, God has ordained. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So Paul says it twice to make the point. The rulers, the authorities that are in place have been established by God. God put them in place for a reason. And so when God put the leaders of Rome in place, he knew that they would be the ones that would lead to the census being taken, which would lead to Jesus coming to Bethlehem and being born in Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy. So our God is a great God. He is the ruler over everything, and he's got everything going on in his control. That should be a reassuring and comforting thing for us this morning. But now to Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus. We've talked about this uh, a, a little bit as we've talked about Christmas over the years at our Twas the Night Before Christmas Eve service, the one we do on the 23rd, not the 24th. But, but here we have this interesting thing that takes place. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a little town. We, talk, we say a little town of Bethlehem. You know, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's called... Um, small among the clans of Judah, is how Micah refers to it. So here Jesus is born in Bethlehem, small among the clans of Judah. When he comes, he doesn't make his entrance into the story in this big, grandiose way, right? He doesn't come into the story and have trumpets fanfaring his entrance at the temple in Jerusalem. He doesn't come and have this big, this big show that shows the Messiah has arrived, and, and here we are, everyone who is a religious leader of the day, this is the Messiah, here he is, pay attention. He also doesn't make his big entrance into Rome, the capital of the world at this point in time. He doesn't you know, kind of make a big entrance and a big show, although he is God and ruler over everything he could have had he chose to, but he chose Bethlehem. He brought the Messiah through Bethlehem. But why? Why did he choose Bethlehem? The same question we can ask about Mary. Why did he choose Mary? Who was Mary? Why, why would Mary be chosen to be the mother of Jesus? How about the shepherds? Why, why would God choose to make his announcement that the Savior had been born to shepherds? Why not somebody who had some influence in the world? Why? Why was Jesus born in a shed and laid down for a nap in a feeding trough? 
And so we're looking through, and, you know, and Luke is making these points, and you know me, I, I kind of tend to ask these questions. Why? Why is this what took place? Why did this happen? And so I've been doing some research and study to try to present a case to you that, that, that I hope will bring all of this together in a way that makes sense, why Jesus is coming to start the story of the gospel that would redeem us all in this way. So let's kind of go through a little bit at a time. Why Bethlehem? Well, first, it's you know, fulfilling the prophecy like we've already mentioned. It's also where David was from, and it's where Samuel, Samuel came and anointed David to be the king of Israel. So there's, there's that part, and it's from the line of David, the lineage of David, that the Messiah was going to come. So there, there's that, that explanation, but I think there is more to it than that. I think it is because it was small. Why choose small little Bethlehem? Because it's small, and I think... It's because that's the gospel. I think Luke is starting to set the stage for how the gospel is going to come and change the way we thought about everything. See, when, when God uses something small, then we can't take credit for it, right? When God does something through something small, then, then it's harder. For, if, he, if he came in to something big like, like the temple, then the, the leaders, the religious leaders, would be tempted to take credit for being a part of what God had done, but he chose Bethlehem. Well, why did God choose a stable and a manger, not the finest inn in town? You know, why, why wasn't Jesus at least put up in the Hilton, you know, for one night? Instead, he's put up in a shed behind the Hilton where they keep the animals that work at the Hilton. I don't know. I mean, this, it doesn't really translate across centuries like that because they didn't have the Hilton. They had. But uh, this one, this one's not, this is a little bit of conjecture. This one isn't for sure, but I really like this as I was studying because in Micah, the same, same one who prophesied about Bethlehem, Micah chapter 4, verse 8, we find this. It says, And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. The tower of the flock, O tower of the flock. And there are some who say that this, and I'm, so just kind of take this as a part of the picture. Don't take this as absolute for sure, but, but take this as, as part of the picture. There are some who say the tower of the flock may refer to Midjol Elder, a watchtower on the north side of Bethlehem. Now inside, this is really interesting. I, I love this. This is, this is great. Inside the base of this watchtower was a shelter that the shepherds would use during lambing season to protect the newborn lambs that would later be used as sacrifices in Jerusalem. And so, you know, this, this tower, you know, that may have been outside, you know, this kind of, you know, kind of a tower, picture a tower with a safe space in the bottom of the tower, you know, where, where, where Mary and Joseph could have been, could have, not for sure, but could have been. Here they are, they come and they have the baby, and it just so happens that it's the, the tower where they kept the lambs that would be used for sacrifices in Jerusalem, and it just so happens that Jesus was, in fact, the Passover lamb that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament that finally came, and Jesus comes. He is the Passover lamb for all of us. This, by the way, would also explain how the shepherds in the story seem to know exactly where to go. Right? The angels say that Jesus is born, and they get up and they go, they know, let's go to Bethlehem. They know right where to go. They may have known that this was the place to go. That's really cool. 
But beyond that, perhaps there's more to it, that, that God chose a lowly entrance like a stable and a manger so that no one, no innkeeper, could boast about having been the birthplace of the king of all creation and how the Lord of all creation was born in their house. What about the shepherds? You've heard this before. The shepherds were the lowliest of all low people in society. We, in, our, in our Christmas Eve service, we call them the, the smelly old shepherds. They were outcasts. They were often known as being thieves and living incredulous lives. And maybe like you could think of them kind of as, as a kind of a gang, you know, the gangs of, of, the, old, or of the old world. But why, why, would, why would the shepherds be the ones that are chosen to receive this announcement that the Savior has been born? And what about Mary? Why, why would Mary be chosen? She's, just, she's a 13-year-old nobody. Nobody knows who Mary is, and she hasn't had any time in her life to prove who she was. And so why, why Mary? Why did God do things in this way? The whole, the whole birth story of the Savior of all of creation just seems totally backwards and upside down from how we would normally think the entrance of the king of all creation would come, right? If we were writing the story, if we were writing a drama about how King Jesus, the Savior of the world, is going to come, it would be more like the fanfare and the celebration and everybody in the world knowing that the Messiah had come. But that's not how it happened. Why? Well, I think it's because this is how the gospel works. What do I mean? Well, God does nothing to attract attention to our personal achievements. God does nothing in, in, in all of human history. He doesn't, he doesn't do anything to attract attention to our personal Achievements. He hasn't done anything to, to attract attention to, to the really religious people and, and look and point out how religious they were. He doesn't look at the really wealthy people and, and point out to the world around them how wealthy they are. He doesn't, he doesn't point out or attract attention to our personal achievements. Instead, everything he has done, the whole point of everything God has ever done has been to bring him glory. Everything that God has laid out since the dawn of time, since the beginning of creation, has been laid out with the purpose of giving God glory. That's, that's the whole reason of everything. And I want to present that case for you because it's all going to make sense as we dig in. Look at this in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. All creation points to God's glory. All of creation points to God's glory. Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so the people are without excuse. Clearly seen. So, so it doesn't, you, you can see that God exists just by being alive and observing the creation around us. So what Paul is saying is that it's been clearly seen that God and his invisible qualities have been observable to us since the beginning of time, since the creation of the world. And you understand this, right? Because when we are out in creation, isn't there something that kind of twinges in us, right? What, like this is one of the reasons I love living out on the farm like we do is because we're just kind of surrounded by majesty. It's just, it's an amazing setting to live. It's an amazing setting to raise our family. You know, we, we live on a mountain. We live on Green Mountain, and, and there, there's forest all around us. It's, it's majestic. On the drive home, almost all of us 
on a regular basis, see these mountains that have popped up all around us. And if you've ever driven over one of the passes, and as you're climbing up through the passes and you get to the top and you start seeing these views from all around you, your, your, your soul just kind of twinges within you, right? Where you say, this is awesome. This is awe-inspiring. This is amazing. How, how could this be? And that's the point. How could this be? Because God created it. The problem comes when we make that the point. The problem comes when we go and we take all of these created things, all of this great stuff that God has made around us, and we, we make the created stuff the point instead of letting it point us to the creator. When we make the creative stuff the point instead of letting it point us to the creator, we're, we're getting off track into what we call sin. And that's what's happened throughout all of our human history is we have, since the beginning when Adam and Eve sinned, we have started to make the created things the point. Ultimately, it comes down to us and who we really worship. And this is the root of sin, when we worship someone besides God. When our hearts are drawn towards the things God created instead of God himself, that's the root of sin. When our hearts are drawn towards the things God created, which includes ourselves, when our hearts are for ourselves, when our hearts are even for the things or for the other people that God has put in our lives, and we worship the people in our lives instead of worshiping God himself. This is the root of sin. Romans chapter 1, verse 25, I want to point out three natures or three parts of, of what we call sin. Ro Romans 1.25 says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is praised forever. Amen. So there are two things. First, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. You could sum up all of humanity in that. We've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We believe the lie that has been told to us by the father of lies, and we're listening to the liar and letting the liar deceive us and take us off track instead of listening to the truth that God has laid out for us from the beginning. We have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and in fact, now in our world today, and what's been this way for a long time, we worship the lie and the lifestyle that the lie brings about because it's, it's appealing to our sinful, selfish, worshiping me and my preferences desire. That's the nature of sin. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. The nature of sin is also that we worshiped and served created things rather than the creator, and we just talked about that, that we, we worship created things, and, and he's making the inference back to, to the people when they were led out of, out of, uh, out of captivity by uh, uh, Moses, and, and they have this, this kind of absence of Moses' influence, and they go right back to making a golden calf, one of, the, one of the gods that God had just annihilated back in Egypt. They make a golden calf, and they start worshiping it, and so we start worshiping the created things rather than the creator. Romans chapter 1, verse 28 says, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Why? Why did, why did that happen? 
because they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. In our lives, we've, we've failed to acknowledge God in, in the way that we live our lives. We, we have failed to, su- to submit to His truth and, and embrace His truth and, and absorb His truth so that our lives are all about His truth for our lives, and we've stopped acknowledging that truth, and we've gone off in our own directions, in our own ways, and we have kind of gone off into this place where now God has turned us over to the depravity. God has turned us over to let us destroy ourselves, essentially. While we're here, I want to point something out because this, this became clear to me this, this week as I was studying, and you, you, you can see this played out in Romans chapter 1, and I would strongly encourage you to go read Romans chapter 1 through 3. At least read that much this week as you're, as you're studying. You can read the whole thing, and it would be greatly helpful to you, but at least read chapter 1 through 3 of Romans. But it's, it's clear that, that the things that we call sin, they are, they are sinful, so don't hear me incorrectly. Lying, cheating, stealing, murder, right? Those are sinful things. But I think we need to be careful not to confuse the outworkings or the actions of sin with what is really at work underneath causing us to do those things. They're the byproducts. They're the outworkings of what is happening inside. In our hearts, we are, we're, we're messed up. In our hearts, we're thinking of ourselves. In our hearts, we're worshiping ourselves and not God. And that leads us to do these things like lying, cheating, stealing, killing, and all the rest. At the root of all of this evil is us, our desire for ourself. And we kind of know that, right? I mean, we understand sin. We understand that, that we're sinful people, right? I mean, everyone knows that, that, that apart from Christ, we're sinners in need of a Savior. That, that should be a truth, hopefully, that everyone, at least who's been around here for a little while, understands. If that's not, if you don't quite understand that, then, then that's fine. I'd love to talk with you after the service, and we can dialogue about that a little bit more. But if you've been around church for a while, you kind of have an understanding that when you do bad things, that is sinning, and that's why we need a Savior. And it's important for us to know that. But it's just as important, perhaps equally important, perhaps maybe even of more importance based on Jesus' ministry and how he lived his life, that we understand this. It's not just about our sin. It's not just our sin that makes us unacceptable. It's also our attempts at righteousness that make us unacceptable. We understand the sin thing. When you do something wrong, you've done something wrong. But, but we also have, we have offended God with our attempts at being righteous in our own strength. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Our attempts at being righteous in our own strength come to God as a filthy rag. In fact, Jesus is going to, going to come down hard on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And in his very first sermon to all of those who would, who would come and listen to him, he just tears into those who would call themselves righteous. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 says, This is Jesus, for I tell you that unless your righteousness 
surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees were responsible for, for making sure everyone lived in accordance with the law, and they were responsible for calling out people who weren't living rightly. That was their job as Pharisees. So they had to know the law really well to be able to call people out on it. And the teachers of the law were the people who taught the law. So Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness is better than their righteousness, you're going to be in big trouble. How can you surpass the righteousness of the people who are teaching you righteousness? That's a problem, right? And this is a great emphasis of Jesus' teaching. Think about it this way. You could go and sell everything you have right now, sell every, every, every last possession you have. For some of us, that might be lots and lots of dollars that we get in return for some are teenagers, you know, it'd be like eight bucks would be all we have. You know. sell, sell everything, sacrifice your entire lifestyle, take that money, and give it to the poor. And it's still a filthy rag. It still doesn't measure up. It still doesn't show true righteousness. So not only does sin create the problem, but our own righteousness causes the problem. In fact, if we could earn our position with God, there'd be no need for God at all, right? I mean, we could do it on our own, and we could get there. There'd be no need for Jesus to come and, and save us all. We could, we could do it on our own, and but if we go back and look at the Ten Commandments, you know, morality 101, kind of the basic structure of morality in the world, we don't live up to those, right? We all, we've all told a lie. If you've been a parent, you know, you don't have to teach your kids to lie. They just somehow automatically know how to lie. And lying comes out of what? Protecting yourself, right? You don't want to get in trouble. You don't want to have this or that happen to you, so you lie to try to stay out of it. You're protecting yourself. When we steal, we're stealing from others to get from them something that we desire for ourselves. It's about me. It's all about me. But not only can we not keep those things, we can't even keep the righteous requirements we place on our own lives. We cannot live up to our own standards. And so then this whole picture makes it kind of seem hopeless, doesn't it? Like, there is no chance for any of us. And that's the point. It is hopeless. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. And they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 says, But now, apart from the law, the law was the righteous stuff we were talking about, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. testify. So, apart from the law, remember we have the law, the Ten Commandments, all the stuff that God told Moses the people of Israel were supposed to do. We have the law, but, but Paul is saying, apart from the law, we also have you know, the, the other things that, that are exemplified in the world around us. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. 
The law and the prophets testify to the righteousness of God, but that's not where they, the righteousness of God originated. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to the reason that he did this, this is the why. Why did he do this? He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then, listen, is boasting? I am a righteous person. Look at the life that I live. I am, I am a very righteous, saved Christian. You can tell because I have lived a great life. Where then is the boasting? It's excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of of the law. Where then is the boasting? The, the boasting is not, I am a righteous person. The, the boasting should be somewhere else, right? That's where we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. So he's chosen me to be here this morning. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, this is, this is the gospel, and this is where my mind goes as we study this passage of Luke, is, is that is there's no one in the story of Jesus' birth that can boast about Jesus being born. There, there's, no, there's no room for boasting about how we were great and we were able to house the Messiah. We were great, and so God chose us to raise the Messiah. We were great. There's nothing of that. It is, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus came so that we might live, be able to live a life that boasts in God. This is the gospel. The world says, I can and I am. I can live a good life and I am righteous. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is, I can't, but you are. I can't, but he is. I can't, but he is for me what I cannot be in myself. I cannot be the one that God needs me to be, and it's impossible for me to live this way, so I can't be it, but thankfully, praise the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He sent our Savior to come and be for us what we could not be for ourselves. I can't be who I'm supposed to be, but he is. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
Verse 21 says, Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You want to become righteous? You want to live a righteous life? Then we have to, as we sang earlier, live a life of surrender where we lay our lives down and allow the one who became sin on our behalf to become our righteousness. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 10 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is. He is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, this old nature that is all about me and getting stuff for myself and and living for my own righteousness and living for my own desires and living for my own wants. Put to death your earthly nature, the the one where you worship yourself and you worship the ground that you walk in. Put that to death. And since you have taken off your old self, you put it off with its practices, now you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. In Christ, we become righteous. In Christ, we become renewed. And now the process of following Jesus Christ is one of being restored into the image of our creator. The image of God that we were created in was marred and it was bruised and it was cursed back when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and we have been living cursed lives ever since. But when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, now we have a chance to be renewed and that image now be restored like it was supposed to be. I can't be who I'm supposed to be, but in Christ I am being renewed into the image of Christ. I can't, I can't, but he is. I can't, but he is. I can't, and I don't deserve it. I deserve death because I've rebelled against God and, and worshiped myself. I've, I've rebelled against God and thought I was smarter than God and told God what to do. I have, I have been self-serving in my own pursuits. I can't, and I don't deserve it. I can't earn it. There's nothing I can do through my righteous attempts and my flawed attempts at righteousness to get right with God. I can't earn it. I don't deserve it. I can't get there on my own. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace we have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And this not from ourselves, it is the free gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Why? Why is he saving us? Why is he giving us this salvation in this way? In order that, so that, verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 2 says, in order that or so that in the coming ages he might show how awesome we are as Christians and how well we lived out our faith. No, it says, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
This is the whole point of everything, that, that everything is pointing to the glory of God. Everything is pointing to, to making God great and putting him in the place that he deserves, which is at the top of everything and out in front of everything and ruler over everything and in charge of everything. It's not so that we can become righteous and have the badge of righteousness on ourselves. It's so that he might become great and we have to learn to understand and embrace his truth that when we live by the truth of God and we embrace the truth of God, and our lives are in accordance with the truth of God, then everything starts to change when we get everything's in the right priority. When we're the priority, everything's out of whack, but when we get God in the place he deserves to be in our lives, everything starts to fall into place and make sense. It's like, like we've been saying for some time now, I can't achieve it. I can only receive it. I can't do this on my own, but he is for me what I need. So this morning, I just, just want to challenge us as we start this look at Jesus' life do you know the real Jesus? Do we know the real Jesus, or, or is the Jesus that we know the one that we've kind of created and concocted that works within our way of thinking? Do we know the real Jesus, the one, the one that came so that we could be redeemed truly and for all eternity? Some of us, were on, we're on that sinful rebellion against God side. We, we don't care about God. We just want to live our lives how we want to live, and, and there's no interest in trying to get our lives to, to adapt to his ways, and so we're just living in, in rebellion, full-on rebellion. But there are some of us who are living in our own feeble, our selfish attempts at righteous, thinking that we can earn our way into a right standing and a right position with God, and that also is flawed and fallen and broken. Do we think if we just do the right things, if we read our Bible enough, if we pray enough, if, you know, if we come to church on enough, you know, two out of four Sundays a month, and if we, you know, if we kind of are nice to people and we help the old lady cross the street and, and you know, and we go and knock on doors and kind of do, you know, rake up the leaves, we kind of do a few good things here and there, we, we think, well, we're, we got to be good. Certainly, certainly God's going to let me in because I've done these good things. That's actually the life we need to repent of. That's the thing we need to turn away from and say, my righteousness isn't going to get me into right standing in relationship with you. The only thing that's going to get me into right standing in relationship with you is to receive you and to start to put on Christ. To surrender and sacrifice all of this stuff, whether it be sin or works of righteousness, to sacrifice and lay that all down and say, I'm not going to pursue this any longer. Now my focus is glorifying God, putting God at the top of everything, making God the most important thing in every area and every aspect of my life. I'm going to lay down everything in pursuit of my creator. And as I follow my creator, then my creator is going to lead me in the paths of righteousness. He's going to lead me in the way everlasting. He's going to lead me in the life that he wants me to live so that I can reflect him more accurately to a world that is caught up in the lies of sin and self-righteousness. 
but we have to let him change us so that we can become what he needs us to be for his glory in the world around us. It's not so that we can make much of ourselves. It's so that we can make much of our creator. Let's stand together. band's going to sing a song, and as they sing, we invite you to come forward and get the elements for communion. We'll take them together after the song. But before that, I just want to ask everyone in here to uh, bow your heads and close your eyes. Nobody looking around. Kids, I'd like you to do that too, if you will, just for a few minutes. Bow your heads, close your eyes. If you're here this morning... And you would say, I've been living in this sinful, rebelling against God, doing things my own way, and I'm ready to lay that down, and I want to experience this life, this righteousness that God has for me, this joy that comes only from knowing him. If you're here and you say, I'm ready to turn away from a life of sin and to turn towards God. Or if you're here to say, I'm, I'm ready to turn away from my own attempts at righteousness and trying to prove that I am good, trying to prove that I, I can get to God on my own, trying to prove that I have what it takes to get where I need to be. If you're in one of those areas, then I just ask, would you raise your hand? I want to pray for you. I've got a couple of hands going up. If you would say, I, I'm done with trying to prove myself, I'm done with trying to please myself, I want to live my life for God, then would you raise your hand and I can pray for you this morning? Amen. You can put your hands down. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the way when we, when we look at your truth, we embrace your truth, we acknowledge your truth, that it has a way of, of shining brightly into our hearts and into our lives and revealing all the things that shouldn't be there that your truth illuminates and your truth will illuminate everything that it touches and that as you illuminate our lives, you are going to illuminate the things that need to be rooted out and replaced with your grace and your truth and your mercy. And I thank you that that is your nature. I thank you that, that you have given us this great gift that if we put our faith in you, that if we, that if we say, I, I am a sinner, whether it's by my sins and my rebellion or my attempts through religion to get to God, I am a sinner and I need a Savior. That if we believe in the work of Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross, that he faced the full wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to, that he paid the price, that my sins needed to be paid and he paid that for me on the cross, that he took that, that I believe that he rose from the dead, that he conquered death, hell, and the grave, that I believe that he ascended now sits at the right hand of the Father and he sent his spirit to dwell in us, his believers, that if I believe that and I live my life in such a way, I reorder everything around that and I commit my life from this point forward to following him, that if, that if we live this kind of life and we make that kind of statement that you will, you have promised, cover us in your true and lasting righteousness. Father, I thank you for those that raise their hands and those that, that want, to, want to live a life that more reflects you, a life that more reflects who you are 
that, that no matter how hard we try on our own, we can't get there, we can't even come close to getting to what we're supposed to be, who we're supposed to be, and what we're supposed to look like on our own righteousness. But they, they have all said, we want to lay that down this morning. I want to pursue my, my creator. I want my focus to be on my creator, not the created things, but my creator, not, not the lies, but the truth of God who is the truth and the way and the life. I want to focus on those things. I thank you for that desire. And I pray, Father, in this moment, that as they receive your gift of righteousness over their lives, that they would find themselves not only empowered by the Holy Spirit, but compelled by the Spirit to live a life different from the life they'd led prior to walking in here. And I pray that for all of us, Father. I pray that for all of us because your Spirit is alive and active and at work in the hearts of all who believe that you would work in our hearts, that you would work in our minds, that you would work in our lives and reorder and reorganize everything away from our selfish pursuits about me and put them in perspective to the God who was and is, who, who always will be, the God that loved us enough to send his son in a lowly way and pave the way for us to receive grace. But not just grace, truth, and receive the truth of God that we had traded in for the lies. And that you didn't just do it and say, now good luck, but that you sent your Holy Spirit to empower us to live this life, this life that looks like Christ, this life that looks like Jesus as he walked on this earth, a a life that, that shines brightly, the light of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ into the darkest places of the earth. I I thank you that you've given us all of that, and I pray, Father, that we gathered here together as 6A Church would find in our hearts a stirring and a driving and a motivation to want to go out of this place in a few short moments and, and live reorganized and reordered lives all around the truth of Jesus Christ that he came to seek and to save that was that which was lost and that was us and now we are found in him we thank you praise you we give you all the glory in Jesus name